Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Kerrang's Inside Track, where the world's biggest artists tell the stories behind the most influential moments in rock history. I think it was in 03, we did the first Headbangers Ball Tour. It was like us, Kill Switch, and Shadows Fall. I think God forbid and Unearth were on it. We were kind of all flip-flopping. That, to me, was the point where I really felt like something's happening. This is a movement. There's a scene that's getting boosted up to the forefront, and somehow we're a part of it. That was the voice of Mark Morton, guitarist for Lamb of God. Though their music is as abrasive and furious as any extreme metal out there, Mark and his band have long since graduated from the underground, selling millions of albums worldwide and receiving two Grammy nominations in the process. Lamb of God, along with the bands listed by Mark, are part of a movement that emerged in the late 90s and early 2000s that has since been christened the new wave of American heavy metal. The genre mixed the playing of European death metal bands, the breakdown-driven fury of American hardcore, and the lyrical vulnerability of the emo scene creating a brutal, heartfelt, and incredibly catchy style of music, which would soon become known as metalcore. Today, you can hear the influence of the new wave of American heavy metal on any rock radio station around the globe. But when they began releasing albums, bands like Killswitch Engage, Unearth, Darkest Hour, Shadows Fall, Chimera, God Forbid and Lamb of God were offering a heavy alternative to the new metal scene, which was booming at the time. The result was a sound that kids from working-class backgrounds could identify with, and a movement whose message would spread around the world without losing the feeling that it sprang from a local scene. The new wave of American heavy metal started in the mid-90s, in blue-collar areas of America's northeast states, places like Massachusetts, Virginia, Ohio, and Connecticut. The gray winters, tight-knit music scenes, and sense of big-city hustle that ran through these often grim locales drove the musicians there to pursue unique sounds at a breakneck pace, focusing on what was blasting out of their neighborhood venues and practice spaces, instead of what was deemed to be hip or commercially popular. Doc Coyle is now a member of Hard Rocker's Bad Wolves, but during his early days as the guitarist for New Jersey's God Forbid, he was just a kid with his ear to the door, one rehearsal room down. Essentially, we were all metal dudes who kind of accidentally discovered the hardcore scene. Our influences around that time were Pantera and Machine Head and Slayer and Sepultura. And we were just getting into death metal. So it was Carcass and Suffocation, uh, At the Gates, Morbid Angel. And 
then we discovered this hardcore scene basically by going to rehearsal studios in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And you and back in the day, you would just like roll up on a rehearsal space and you'd like listen through the door and you'd be like, man, that band sounds sick. And you would just walk in <laughs> and just like hang out and watch bands rehearse. Added to the shared experience was a sense of tangible agony and turmoil, a bitterness at the world that came from being an everyday schmuck. Jesse Leach, vocalist for Westfield, Massachusetts band Killswitch Engage, believes that the fury he felt came in part from his surroundings. All of us, minus Joel, really came from American hardcore. Like, growing up listening to bands like, I still worship at the altar of Black Flag and Minor Threat and Dead Kennedys. And to me, they were, they spoke to me like no other music did before even like a Metallica or an Anthrax, which I still love those bands too, but... We're all kind of cut from that blue-collar working mentality that was really prevalent, not just in the United States, but the northeastern United States especially. I feel like that whole Boston, Rhode Island, like, grimy working class thing is probably a lot of why we got into the music we did and why we started writing and the frustration and the anger. East Coast, fuck you, absolutely. Is that bitter, like... You know, good salted earth people, but there's bitterness, man. You know, you don't, you're not going to get that in California. You're not going to get that in Texas. It's that, I you know, blue collar, like fucking work hard, party hard, and, you know, shut the fuck up and move on kind of idea of, of music. But the East Coast was only half of the equation. Uninterested in the genre boundaries between metal and hardcore that caused so much conflict in the 80s and early 90s, the founders of the new wave of American heavy metal began gobbling up melodic death metal from across Europe and the UK. Bands like Carcass, In Flames, Children of Bodom, and At the Gates drove these young US bands to tune down their guitars and pump their songs full of melodic riffs and blast beats. Today, the general consensus is that new metal killed traditional metal in the 90s, but Doc Coyle never saw it that way. There's a fallacy about what was actually happening in heavy music at the time. And the, the, the narrative that everyone goes with was the idea that metal died in the, in the mid-90s. But I think from a creative perspective and from a fan's perspective, that's where, for me, a lot of stuff was actually getting good. Because, you know, a lot of the thrash metal bands had kind of fallen off or gone, you know, Metallica had kind of gone more rock. Um, Megadeth, you know, kind of, they went, you know, with albums like Risk, they had kind of gone a certain way. But then you had bands like Testament putting out records like Low and Demonic. Um, you had bands like Meshuggah showing up. The Underground really, in in spite of, you know, metal not being quite as the mainstream thing as it was in the 80s, uh, the Underground re really flourished. And a big part of that was what was happening in Sweden. Interestingly enough, those European bands inspiring the formation of metalcore were themselves experimenting with unorthodox international styles. Olavi Makonen, guitarist for Swedish Viking metalers Amana Marth, may have sounded like a maverick to kids in Cleveland and Newark, but he himself was finding his own stylistic footing. I was really into grindcore and up on death, and I really liked all these, you know, fast songs. Like it was like, and that's that, that's the song. But but the thing is that I always liked heavy music and I always liked, you know, Slayer, aggression of Slayer, the heaviness of Bolt Thrower, the riffs of Our Maiden and Priest. And my goal has always been to combine all that. Killswitch Engage guitarist Adam Dutkowicz, better known to fans as Adam D, 
felt his band's music was more a continuation of those European acts than any sort of progression. I think we're just kind of carrying a torch, you know. It's, um, I don't think we invented anything. I don't think we were the forefathers of anything. We're just, uh, we're a metal band. Just we playing what we learned through other metal bands and, you know, maybe putting our own little twist on it. That's it. At the gates and all that stuff. That's in Carcass. That's what we kind of, you know, that's what was really pushing us when we started the band. Metalcore, as the emerging style came to be known for obvious reasons, struck a chord with fans who weren't much different from the musicians creating the genre. These young listeners felt alienated by the polished world of mainstream rock and saw this mixture of European extreme metal and brutal hardcore as the culmination of everything they loved. Unearth frontman Trevor Phipps believes the change just came from bands wanting to hear their own underground idols represented. I think the time's called for it, and I do think that naturally what, what, what people wanted to hear, you know, because people of our age at the time, we were all in our early 20s, and so what came before us were our collective influences, and you have to believe that the people listening to underground music, that's what their influences were as well. And so new metal was really big in the mid to late 90s, and aggressive metal kind of really went pretty far underground. Existing on its own terms, the early metalcore scene was both congenial and competitive. Though no two bands sounded exactly alike, their united philosophy of placing musical ability first and helping other fledgling bands out forged a tight-knit community that was fueled more by respect for one another's growing talent than any sense of genre dominance. Mark Morton remembers Lamb of God's early days as being good-natured, even as his band, whose hometown of Richmond, Virginia, seemed like the deep south to some of his peers, were still finding their footing. I think it was just the kind of community that formed amongst those bands and even the fans and the, the people that were working for the labels. There was a real spirit of we were all rooting for each other. Again, it was competitive to a point, but it was always, you know, we were always rooting for each other. And what was good for Killswitch was good for Lamb, was good for Shadows Fall, was good for Unearth, was good. You know, it was, we, we all wanted the other to succeed because we understood that the better we all did, the better we all did, right? Not only did metalcore bands have peers to elevate each other, but they also had a common enemy against which to rally. By the end of the 90s, the once edgy new metal scene had risen to unexpected heights, resulting in a market flooded with bands trying thirstily to emulate the style and sounds of Korn, Limp Bizkit, and Slipknot. New metal had begun to feel more like an exercise in false machismo and rock star excess than a genre with any real message. Compared to the working class honesty of the East Coast's fertile scene, the massive, LA-based subgenre came off as plastic and shallow, and the kids who listened to it were deemed whiny tryhards, playing at tragedy they didn't fully understand. Doc Coyle puts it bluntly. I don't know if people really have a great sense of things, is that that group of bands, what kind of what killed new metal in the early 2000s, and kind of, and not that new metal really never really went away, but it definitely was a dirty word and it was uncool to be new metal. And obviously some many of the bigger new metal bands never stopped being huge, but just in, in terms of um, the, the choice aesthetic of, of the moment. The turn of the millennium marked the point where the new wave of American heavy metal emerged from its underground roots. 
In 2000, the same year that Limp Bizkit gave the world their highly polished chocolate starfish and the hot dog-flavored water, Shadows Fall released their sensational second album, Of One Blood, while Richmond's Burn the Priest changed their name to Lamb of God and dropped their own aptly titled second record, New American Gospel. Trevor Phipps remembers the moment he realized Unearth was more than an underground sensation. We had Metal Fest in Worcester, I believe it was May of 2001 or April 2001, and everyone knew every word to the songs. And I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of unreal. But again, that, that, was, that was a local show. Um, we played the second stage, there might have been five or 600 people there, and it was, it was, at that time, it was probably our best show. But then, a month later, we did a tour with Brothers Keeper, and I remember we played a, a small club called the Cog Factory in Omaha, and um, as soon as we took the stage, maybe two, three hundred people in there. We played our song, My Heart Bleeds No Longer, and everyone knew every word. And this is the furthest we'd been from home ever. And I was like, holy shit, what, what's going on? I actually had to stop singing for a second. I turned to our drummer, because I was just kind of laughing. I was laughing with excitement. She was like, what, what is going on here? We had no idea that our music had reached that far, and people were losing their minds to our songs. As metalcore picked up steam, even outsiders began to take notice. Of course, the same honesty and work ethic that elevated the scene in the first place also meant that most of the guys making the music had no idea that they were doing anything special. Doc Coyle remembers the first inkling he had that he and his friends were on to something. I remember a good friend of mine, Denise Kariki, who worked for MTV and Fuse, maybe even the first Lamb of God record. She's like, they're the next Pantera. And I was like... Really? You think they're going to be that? Because I, at the time, I just viewed them as this like really underground, gritty band, and I didn't see that. And then you see how big they are now, and you're like, yeah, man, there was just something special about that band that if you kind of looked at it through the right lens, it had this thing that was going to really change heavy metal, and in a big way. You know what I mean? They might be the second or top two or three biggest extreme metal bands of all time. You know, and that's it's hard to believe when you think about where it started. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Two thousand and two saw the new wave of American heavy metal landing and landing hard. Fed by attention from the legions of grassroots fans drawn to their unique sound, the artists of the metalcore scene began releasing albums that held on to their earnest hunger while reaching for new heights of melody and, more importantly, accessibility. Two of the year's albums were especially monumental. The first was Perseverance, the second studio release by Connecticut's Hatebreed. The band's debut record, 1997's misanthropic Satisfaction is the Death of Desire, was one of the driving forces behind Metalcore's development. But with Perseverance, Hatebreed expressed a sincere empathy for their fans. Tracks like You're Never Alone and I Will Be Heard urged young listeners to use their personal struggles as means to a positive end. That message also extended to the other bands within their scene, whom Hatebreed made a point of lifting up along with them. Doc Coyle hasn't forgotten the favors he received while in God Forbid. Hatebreed set the table for all of us. They they broke down the barriers of record sales thresholds. You know, they put up that album, uh, Satisfaction of Death Desire, sold, I think, two or 300,000 copies at the time, which was, you know, the biggest hardcore album in history at the time. And they, they got on OzFest, they toured the Slipknot. None of this happens without Hatebreed. The other side of the coin was Killswitch Engage's Alive or Just Breathing, which represented the more melodic and emotional aspects of metalcore. While the record was filled with throttling breakdowns and savage screams, it was the passionate clean choruses and melodious interludes on tracks like My Last Serenade and The Element of One that most enthralled fans around the world and would define what many would consider the classic metalcore sound from then on. Oddly enough, while Hatebreed's crushing tones were a positive venting of spleen, Killswitch's honeyed approach actually seemed like an exercise in anguish for vocalist Jesse Leach. Emotions definitely took the front seat and would cloud my vision, for sure, and I don't think I realized what we had back then. I think I was just shooting from the hip and trying to get through it and feeling like this is what I was supposed to be doing, but not really having the grasp of you know, the importance of it and the importance of facing those inner demons and trying to work through that stuff. I didn't have any of that language. I had no idea it was as bad as it was. Though the experience of recording the album was difficult for Jesse, in retrospect, Doc Coyle just remembers the record as a genuine game changer. I think the most relevant record of the new wave American heavy metal scene really is Killswitch Engage Alive or Just Breathing. I mean, I've never seen an album be more of a an atomic bomb in this world. You know, I've seen, you know, on a commercial level, bands kind of come out on Monday and they're the biggest band on Tuesday. But in terms of people and influence, like people literally, bands changing their sound overnight after that record came out, I've never seen anything like that. From 2002 to 2004, the new wave of American heavy metal swept across the United States reaffirming underground hardcore and metal scenes as fruitful creative breeding grounds for authentic heavy music. For a touring band like Unearth, the biggest change took place at live gigs, where the audiences were getting more enthusiastic at an exponential rate. Here's Trevor Phipps again. 
But at the time, it, it did feel special. It felt unique. Uh, you could tell just by the reaction of the shows, by the, each weekend we did shows, each tour we did, the shows got bigger and bigger and people started to flip out more and more. The pits got more violent, the, the pylons got, got bigger, people were, you know, just crushing it. And it just, it felt, it felt good, uh, it felt unique and it felt, it felt new. One major outlet that noticed was Ozzy Osbourne's traveling tour OzFest, which went from dabbling in metalcore one year to adopting it wholeheartedly the next. Doc recalls the transition. If you look at the lineup for Ozfest 2004, the year before, Killswitch, Shadows Fall, Cradle of Filth, and Sworn Enemy had done Ozfest within the sea of a bunch of new metal bands. And by the next year, our scene had completely taken over. It was Hatebreed, Lamb of God, Darkest Hour, Unearth, Atreyu, Every Time I Die, Throwdown. So we really had taken over. And then you had a band like Slipknot on there who really in a way, kind of embraced the scene. You know, after that, they took out all those bands. In 2004, the new wave reached a fevered creative pitch. God forbid released their massive fourth album, Gone Forever, while Killswitch Engage, now featuring vocalist Howard Jones, reached new levels of mainstream success with The End of Heartache, the title track of which was featured in the action horror film Resident Evil 2, Apocalypse. The year also saw Lamb of God releasing Ashes of the Wake, their first album with epic records and a triumph of modern metal, whose cutthroat riffs and scathing condemnation of the George W. Bush administration proved that the new wave could address issues on a global scale. For Mark Morton, that increase in scope was what came with living through those interesting times. I think as lyricists, Randy and I were you know, in the moment, it was it was a politically charged time. It was post 9-11, newly post 9-11. I think what was, that was just kind of what was on our mind. It wasn't a mission statement so much. It's just what we were writing about. And isn't it funny how now George Bush Jr. just seems like your pretty cool old uncle. Whereas the time he seemed like this horrible villain and now he's just like, ah, he's all right. <laughs> but while signing to major labels gave Metalcore more opportunities and attention, it also made them part of the music business they'd until then avoided. While fans may remember Ashes of the Wake's sonic power, Mark remembers the immense pressure that came with putting out the band's first major label release. In my mind, there was a much more compressed frame of time in which I had to write the material that I was going to submit for an album. So I remember that being great pressure and that being my first uh, our first album for the major, for Epic. So it was pretty high pressure, high stress. And I don't, I think that probably was, in hindsight, that may have been beneficial because we didn't really have a lot of chance to second guess ourselves. There wasn't, a, it, it was kind of throw and go um, and trust your instinct. And I think that was something I learned at that point in time was to um, trust your own artistry, trust your instinct and don't double, triple think everything. Because I didn't have the luxury of being able to do that anyway. It was like, write material, submit it, work on it with the band. This is the album we're writing. Mark's sentiments were felt all across the genre. By the mid-2000s, most of the bands in the new wave of American heavy metal were signing to major labels and touring with huge marquee metal acts like Metallica, Slayer, and Slipknot. But now that the style was established and there was money invested in these artists... The emphasis on making financial returns and appealing to a wider audience came into play. For more extreme bands like Unearth, this was a change that was lived through rather than embraced. 
in the early days, it was more about fun and more about, you know, just, just pushing the band and taking the, the best tours we could. And, you know, the band was getting paid peanuts back then as well. You know, I think we were, we were leaving a lot of money on the table just because we we're hungry young kids trying to, to play shows and tours because uh, it didn't really matter at the time. As soon as it turned into a career, um, after uh, The Oncoming Storm came out in 2004, um, there was a lot of pressure from management and from, from labels and, you know, agents and stuff to do certain tours to do certain things. And um, it did create some disharmony within the band, but we always kind of kept the, you know, our, our eyes on the prize and kept moving forward. For others, like Killswitch Engage's Adam D., meanwhile, those pressures were a distraction more than anything else. You know, we've gotten label pressure in the past, and normally, you know, I'll, I'll shrug it off because at the end of the day, it shouldn't be the label's call. You know, we're going to want to make the music that we're going to want to play. You know, I think that's important. That's one thing band, bands have to remember. Uh, just make sure you are proud of what you're doing and you do what you want to do. Because at the end of the day, you're the ones playing on the, st- on the stage. You know, you're the ones that have to get up there and, you know, be proud of what you've done and be like, hey, we want to play the song for you. Then again, Doc Coyle believes that the desire to make it as major artists is what made the movement special in the first place. The key to the success of New Wave of American Heavy Metal was a few things. One, I think it was the first collective outside of underground kind of death metal that really put a focus on musicianship. You know, and the combination of that with our reverence, unabashed reverence for the Metallicas and the Megadeths and Iron Maiden and Pantera, those are massive bands. They were commercial bands. So you take that musicianship, you take that drawing influence from these bands that were that were big and able to connect and have a, an accessibility, then you take the kind of new school presentation of it, you know, and drawing from, you know, tuning the guitars down and having the breakdowns, which connected to that younger gen- generation who maybe grew up on new metal, who maybe grew up on, on hardcore. And so the, it took the combination all, of, of all of that. And, you know, like I said, we, all the, the, the bands in that, all had big ambitions. CBGB was not our defining moment. You know, we all wanted to be on MTV and we wanted to play in arenas and we wanted to have songs on the radio. Like any musical genre with a meteoric rise, the new wave of American heavy metal eventually crashed. Once the genre was widely accepted, many Fairweather fans abandoned it for the next big thing. And while some of the bands continued to entertain mainstream audiences, others changed their sound and image. Some, like God forbid, just called it quits. Here's Doc again. I wrote an article about this um, not too long after I moved to Los Angeles and right after Chimera and Bleeding Through had broken up. And... The kind of thesis of the the piece was everything that's supposed to happen kind of happens. That it's not really unfair. Nine out of ten times the cream rises to the top. And you kind of see that across the board when you look at different subgenres, right? So you'll have hair metal, right? Or glam metal will be a thing. And it's huge and there's a million bands. But after it fades out, who who lasts? It's Motley Crue. It's poison. It's really only the, the biggest and best bands. New metal, same thing. It's like Linkin Park was never struggling, you know. Disturbed was never struggling. <laughs> Corners was never really struggling, you know. 
and I think things kind of bared out how it made sense. And I, I made a quote, John Berklin, who's the drummer of Bad Wolves, and he was the drummer of uh, Devil Driver, who was a big part of that scene as well. Me and him were on a tour bus together in, in Europe, and we were talking about Lamb of God and Killswitch. And he goes, you know, maybe they're just better than we are. And they were. If Killswitch is the corollary for God Forbid and Lamb of God is the corollary for Devil Driver, I think they just wrote better songs and were better musicians and had something that was more iconic and connective to people at large, which is why those bands really have never lost any steam. And yet Metalcore's working class Band of Brothers ethos remains to this day. Speaking to the musicians behind the biggest bands in the scene, they're most excited to talk about each other. More specifically, they remember what it was like playing together during the scene's early days. We literally played basements or living rooms with God forbid to 10 people. We did a show with Burn the Priest in 1998, who obviously became Lamb of God, and we played in a garage in front of one person paid. <laughs> Unearthed to me just became a full-on metal band. Like the, the quote-unquote metalcore label went away real quick with those guys. And I've always loved what they did. I've always loved their style, their passion, their tenacity, their speed. Like, they're a good metal band. While some bands of the new wave of American heavy metal continue more successfully than others, none of them have forgotten one another. Looking back at the movement, Mark Morton doesn't remember successes or failures. Ultimately, what he looks back on is a feeling of togetherness. I don't know. I, I hate to single anyone out because it makes it sound like they fell short of, of something, which they didn't. We, we all won. You know, we all got to do, got to live in that moment and got to have those experiences. And it's, it's all still going on. This episode of Kerrang's Inside Track was produced, written and narrated by me, Chris Crovaton. It was directed and executive produced by Ethan Fixell, with additional script direction by Phil Alexander. It was edited and mixed by Kieran Kay at Full English Post in Brooklyn, New York. All music was written and composed by Ben Hutcherson. And our logo was designed by Matt Dykesel. Special thanks goes out to Amy Ciaretto, John Freeman, and Nikki Law for helping us organize the interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Inside Track wherever you listen to your podcasts. And visit Kerrang.com for more information on your favorite heavy metal bands. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.